Hey family, it's Kelly. I am recording bonus podcast number two for live at Ishwish number two. So I'm pulling up Instagram so people can follow me on Instagram too. And I'm so excited to be able to do this. It's kind of come to my attention that like what I do is I call it, I call it the translator. So I translate the medical science and the experts and the researchers Side note, researchers are amazing. I'm glad they do what they do, but they don't always communicate well, especially to like the average people, right? There's 330 million people in America who did not attend this Ishwish conference. So for people who don't know, Ishwish is the uh, International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And I just finished uh, day three. I was exhausted yesterday. So this podcast is the summary of day two, and there will be a separate day three podcast shortly. Um, and I don't know if you guys have been to a lot of conferences, but like it's freaking freezing in there. Like I have like a long sleeve shirt on and like leggings and like I'm holding tea because it's so cold. I like can never get warm at conferences. If I ever plan a conference and I would plan a conference for like the average woman, not I don't want to plan like a medical conference and just for the average woman to come and listen to sex experts talk would be mind blowing. And I know they have conferences for women and sex where it's all about like, you know, call it a yoni and breathe, it, breathe into your spleen and like super good empowerment stuff. But like to hear it from the sex researchers would be so phenomenal. So not quite sure how to make that. Um, <laughs> somebody said on Instagram, they're trying to preserve me by keeping me so cold. Maybe if you keep it this cold, like you don't wrinkle, right? And I, you certainly don't wrinkle when you're inside in a windowless, you know, conference building in Dallas for three days. So let me see if I can get through day two, all the notes I take for you. I literally like write down notes of like, what's interesting? What can I summarize for you guys, the listeners? So I'm the translator. That's my job. I know how to read the medical stuff and talk to the researchers and... One of my favorite things about researchers, as I just came out of an abstract session and they do their research and I'm, I'm always like, cause I'm like boots on the ground, right? Like I take care of the women. And so I'm like, okay, so what does this mean? So why do you think this is? And they're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Or like, how is this useful going forward? I don't know, we need more research. And I'm like, okay, I'll come back next year for round two. Um, there's a super interesting one today. Just, I'll talk about it today. They were looking at uh, people in online forums for PCOS and uh, vulvodynia. So they hadn't looked at the vaginal atrophy groups because I know there's big uh, vaginal atrophy groups too. And they were they basically pulled people and they pulled cis hetero women and their bias against having trans uh, women in the polls and just interesting stuff and like I have so many more questions I'm like why do you think you know this is did it vary based upon age did it and what one thing that they found was that the the more kind of separate and this is like complicated sex stuff so I like I'm sorry if I kill this research but the more like far the farther away the cis hetero woman is from like the stereotype of what a cis hetero woman is the more she kind of opposed the trans woman from people from being in the group so fascinating research I, I more i mean this is like people have not researched this stuff so it's just so interesting ah it's all interesting okay so day two the first amazing lecture was talking to how to talk to kids about sex and this was run this was given by a psychologist and a sorry a psychiatrist and a um, med peds uh 
doc and they said that adolescents are more embarrassed but more eager to talk about sex so like don't let the embarrassment be a reason that you don't talk to them about sex um and it has to start young so that by an adult it's just a normal part of a healthy discussion um and the states aren't doing it the parents have to do it they have nine states out of 52 states they looked at Nine states require a discussion about consent with sex, which to me and like all the sex researchers is like a crucial component of navigating your sexuality with another human is the discussion about consent before you agree to a behavior or, or how much behavior or what doesn't feel, what's yuck and what's yum, right? So nine states require a consent discussion. Um, so that means we're not really helping young people navigate this very well. Um, and oh, I think only seven states, what is it? Um, if it's very few states, I think it's more than seven, require medical accuracy in the sex education. Um, Texas, they t so because we're in Texas for the Ishwish Conference, so Texas specifically, sexual education is not required in the schools. Uh, the emphasis has to be on abstinence. Um, they say that homosexuality is not accepted and is a criminal offense. I think that was in like, I don't know where they're getting this from. Um, forget the website, but you can actually look this up. And this was the, how they had looked up what Texas was. Um, and the parents have to actually opt in to teaching their kids about sex. And some states are opt out, right? So we're gonna teach everybody about sex, but you can opt out. In Texas, parents actually have to opt in to having their kids taught about sex in school. Uh, and there is no medically accurate mandate. So you guys, that's how bad, not, we're picking on Texas just because we're in Texas and the Conference on Female Sexuality is in Texas, but there are some states that are no better than this. But certainly, um, you've, Texas, you've set a low bar. I can't, I can't think of anything else to say besides that. So what they know is education about sexuality does not spoil innocence, and they actually propose that innocence is not the same as ignorance. Um, yeah, why would they not be medically accurate? I know, it's like about bodies and stuff like that. I don't know why it wouldn't be medically accurate. It's blowing my mind. Um, so they said sex ed is not just you know how it functions, but it, uh, you can talk about your values as a family and talk about consent and safety and anatomy. So sex ed really can encompass all of that. And they said 30 one-minute conversations with your kids are better than one 30-minute conversation. And I loved that idea. And they said by the time they're teenagers, they can handle a 30-minute conversation about this. But um, when they're younger, just one minute don't overload the, their brain, don't throw in too much at a time. So aim for 30 minute, 31 minute conversations over a course of time, not one 30 minute conversation. Um, and they said the info should be factual, concise and loving. And I loved how they said it should be downright loving, which I thought was just so cool. Um, and that and another part of how to teach kids about consent is that consent is you are the boss of your body so that they know that, right? So that they know other people aren't the boss of their body. I really loved that. Um, and they talked about porn for kids, right? If, if a porn, because first access of porn by kids is, a, I think it's around nine now. So it's really young and to, to actually 
talk about it, that this is something created by adults for adults, but you might be exposed to it when you go online. And they said, why would kids be curious about porn? It's not always because it's overtly sexual, but that kids are curious. They find it by accident. They watch it for a shock value or they watch it for sex ed because that's all they have and they're trying to figure it out, right? Because they don't have any other resources. Um, and they said, there's two different ways you can go about it. You can go about it like the porn avoidance in that all porn is bad, um, which actually doesn't turn out well. And then it would lead your kids to more being in secrecy about any porn that they would accidentally or not accidentally view versus porn literacy, meaning anticipatory education that it's not real. This is completely a movie and it's fake and it doesn't predict or it doesn't represent real sex or the feelings you're going to have or the functions that your body is going to have. So like anticipating talking about how it's not real and it's created and it's a fantasy fairy tale. Um, so that was an awesome talk. Next talk was talking about distraction during sex. Um, Dr. Giraldi from the University of Copenhagen spoke on that. And Basically, the, um, the vision of the International Society for Sex Med, which is what she's part of, is that every human being has a right to a satisfying sexual life, which I thought was super cool. So spectatoring was first described by Masters and Johnson in 1970. It's where you take a third person perspective um, to the sexual event that you're having. So it, it can increase your performance fears and affect your performance because you're basically like judging and watching you have sex. You have a fear of failure. Um, you have issues with body image. Both of those can lead to spectatoring. Um, thoughts about what your partner's thinking, right? So thoughts about like, does he love me? Is he judging my body? I'm using he pronouns, but certainly uh, he's can spectate on cheese and cheese and cheese and all the things. Um, and then just being worried, right? You're worried, you're thinking about what's happening. Um, and when we talk about being distracted, it means that like a lack of attention, right? So a lack of attention. And one thing to think about is like, if you never got taught that sex was like, okay, and like paying attention to your genitals was okay, you might not know to draw attention to the genitals and then your brain is more distracted. So treatments of distracted sex is mindfulness. So training your brain to come back to the moment, come back to your body, not judging when your brain does what it's always trained to do, right? How often do we actually live in the present moment, which is what good sex is, it's living in the present moment. Um, and then sensate focus uh, is really kind of activities to like work up to being aware of the body and sexual sensations. And Lori Brado actually wrote, what was her book? I've read it, Mindfulness. Mindfulness for better sex. Oh, better sex, something with the role of mindfulness. Lori Brado, University of uh, British Columbia in Canada. If you want to read more about mindfulness, and she talks about the study she has done with women specifically to work on pleasure-based sex. Um, somebody says, I love the daily summaries at your conference. Kids must opt out of sex education in, in Ontario, but it doesn't happen often. Yeah, I think if you have to opt out, it's like they've almost normalized that sex education happens, right? And you opt out. That's way more normalizing of it than if you have to opt in, right? Like you're the weird one who's choosing sex ed. So that's so cool. And you know, the other thing I was thinking about is, is it possible to be bored at a sex med conference? And like it actually is because I was bored several times. So just in case you think it's like enthralling all the time, I'm not telling you about, I'm not telling you about the, the things where I was like, and how does this apply to my people? I'm not quite sure, kind of bored. 
yeah, somebody said that'd be an awesome podcast episode for me, how parents can talk about it and bring it up with the kids. I actually have recorded one already about that, specifically talking to your kids. So that one's recorded. That'll probably come out in a little bit. And then I met one of the speakers for that talk um, She did during this weekend. She's like, would love to come on your podcast and talk. So I'll probably have two, at least in 2022, about sex and, and how to talk about it. So the question we don't have, again, going back to mindfulness and distraction, is what's the role of Addy, which is the not so new anymore, but it's the pill for hypoactive sexual desire disorder in refocusing the brain and bringing back, back, back into the moment. So the next talk was on sex and babies, well, sex after having babies, right? So they said about 56% of couples don't get any information about changing sex lives after having a baby. Um, and there's, if you look at the people who had a baby six months ago versus like the control group, they had the same frequency of sex at six months after a baby as the control group, but they still had worse sexual function. So I think that means that quantity doesn't equal quality, right? So there's more, re again, all the researchers are like, more research needs to be done to figure this out. But things that help with sex life after having a baby is empathy, your feelings of empathy towards a partner, seeing the perspective of your partner. Um, so increased empathy equals increased sexual relationship satisfaction, which is so cool. There is this, um, it's, I think it's www.postbabyhankypanky.com, which is super cute, but they've made a lot of cute instructional videos to try to help new parents just to normalize that like your sex life will not be the same. Just know, even knowing that and anticipating it decreases distress associated with it. Um, I tried to talk to my kids about sex recently, but with no luck. Yeah. It's not like a one and done and you failed, right? It's just, and you can go back to it and be like, remember that time I tried to bring this up and then you can like talk about vulnerability, right? Like, I feel like I just didn't know what to do right or like that, you know, we didn't click the first time. I'd love to talk about this again in the future. Um, so that would be one option is like, just cause you failed at talking to your kids once doesn't mean you have to like give, throw in the towel. It's like a long distance, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's like a long distance race. So they said best communication tips for talking to your partner. This was in the post baby uh, talk, but I think this applies to everybody is choose the appropriate time, right? So not when you're like angry or like the in-laws are coming over or like I can name like all the bad, all the wrong times. Um, use I messages. So you're reflecting your experience instead of like the you shaming pointing finger sort of communication. So I feel neglected when I feel not listened to when the I thing really takes the pressure off and the blame off of the other person and can really open up your vulnerability to, you know, start a conversation. And then number three on the best communication tips was being an active listener. So when they're talking, just soak it in. Don't, don't try to be thinking about what you're going to say next. Those can be three great communication tips. Um, then the next talk was sexual dysfunction in women with premature ovarian insufficiency. And they, they describe that as loss of ovarian follicular activity less than 40 years old. Um, and that if you do labs, you're gonna have a low estrogen or you're gonna have an, a high FSH on labs. So it's hypergonadotropic hyper hypogonadism for all of you medical nerds out there. So um, it used to be called premature ovarian failure, but they actually changed that name because they thought it didn't fully, first of all, um, 
being called a failure is not awesome, right? Um, and sometimes it's temporary, like you'll regain uh, ovarian function happens sometimes. So they change the name. This happens in about 3% of women. So about 3% of women will have you know, early menopause or what they call early loss of ovarian function. And uh, about two thirds of these women will have sexual dysfunction. It's actually more common in these women to have sexual dysfunction than the general population. But desire for sex is not always affected. And they, again, more research is needed on this. Um, and they said the ones who know that they have premature ovarian function, they have worse sexual function than those who don't know they have it. Right, so there's something about knowing or your body image or like what you're making it mean that actually affects your sexual function. And they call it the psychological burden of the disease. So they said the treatment is high replacement doses of hormones. I know there's so many people that I've talked to who said they were never offered that when they went into premature ovarian um, uh, insufficiency before 40. So that's the treatment of it. Um, somebody asked, what are you what are your thoughts on the word dysfunction when it comes to anything to do with sexual health i'm glad they moved away from failure but dysfunction isn't awesome either yeah i, I agree you know one of the things we were talking about a lot at this conference is how in order to like you know especially when you're doing research protocols but how to communicate with each other words are so important and we keep changing words right and so it's like we used to call it this and we call it this or so are we even studying the same thing Right, and they've changed. They've changed the way that hypoactive sexual dysfunction is classified in the DSM-5, and how does that affect how we study things and the funding available? So, like words matter, but even amongst researchers, they always keep changing it. So, yeah, how do you describe issues with sex without cause, calling it dysfunction? And is that preferred? I don't know. But words matter, and then we just keep changing the definitions. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so. Goal for premature ovarian insufficiency is high, higher dose hormones to get you to the replacement numbers of what normal, you know, 35 year old would be at until the age at least of natural menopause. Again, in America, that's 51, 52. Um, but some people still can't take estrogen, right? History of strokes, history of blood clots. Um, and then they say SSRIs, antidepressants for hot flashes can work. I think in some studies they work, they work about 40% of the time. But again, if you're giving somebody an SSRI, SSRIs have sexual side effects, right? So what is next? They, then the next talk is cancer survivorship. And they said, as more and more people are cured of their cancer, there's more and more survivors, 35% of them will have, and this is female, 35% uh, of them will have pain with intercourse, issues with desire, 23 to 64%, and then body image issues in 30 to 67% of women who have been treated for cancer. Um, so aromatase inhibitors are a common med used in advanced breast cancer, and they said those have the most sexual dysfunction um, compared to like a tamoxifen. And hot flashes are in 90%, vaginal dryness 50%, decreased libido 40%. And they t looked at a study using hyaluronic acid a moisturizer study in breast cancer and they said the three times a week wasn't enough most women had to do at least five times a week um, and they said there was improvement over their baseline sexual question you know function questionnaire um, but a quarter of those patients just on hyaluronic acid did not improve and so then you can move on to vaginal estrogen so they say um, lowest dose is best but more and more women who've been survivors of especially breast cancer are being allowed to go on vaginal estrogen. Um, so then they looked at 
the medication bupropion versus placebo for desire and sexual function in women who had had breast cancer or gynecologic cancer. They looked at about 230 women and there was no change in desire because everybody got better. So even the placebo, you're taking a pill that might help you with sexual function, it turns out it improves your sexual function. Like the power of placebo in sexual medicine is really, really strong. Um, and in the bupropion group, there's an average, um, uh, no, it's in the filbanserin. So filbanserin's a newer one. Filbanserin actually had um, five pound weight loss involved with it. Uh, they were looking at 100 milligrams at bedtime. And they said, compared to placebo, filbanserin did help more than placebo um, to decrease distress with sexual dysfunction. Any discussion, somebody asked, any discussion on CBD suppositories for breast cancer survivors, since most are afraid to use estrogen, even though topical estrogen, uh, vaginal estrogen should be fine. There's more and more research on that. I was actually going to have somebody on my podcast soon. Um, there's a couple of menopause um, CBD researchers who are really interested in seeing like, what's the science? If we actually study this, is it, does it work? Um, so Again, I'm going to use that cliche, like more research needed on it. Um, then the next one was amazing. It was an hour and a half looking at sex and religion. So they had four panelists and it was Catholicism, Catholicism, Judaism, Muslim and Mormon. And it was fascinating. And basically, uh, in, in, I can break it down. This is like such a 10,000 foot overview, but in Judaism, couples are not, and they were looking at the Orthodox Judaism, couples are not well prepared for their wedding night, lack of anatomy and physiology knowledge. Um, and then also all the like ritual rules around it can add a lot of stress. It's very, um, some people really wel welcome the rules around it, their sexuality. And then some people, it causes a lot of distress. Uh, it does happen to teach that masturbation is a, a sin, which can create like an existential crisis. Um, and the rule that, you know, the woman's job is to sleep with her husband so that he doesn't masturbate and sin. So it's her job to make sure he doesn't sin, which can add a huge amount of stress and pressure on the women. This is like such an amazing topic. And then they kept like 30 minutes for Q&A, which was great. Um, so Islam and sex, they went through a lot of myths and like debunked a lot of myths that th the myth that sex is actually bad and that sex can be actually a very healthy part of a married relationship and good sex in marriage is actually encouraged. Um, but fear of sex can lead to pain, avoidance, and then vaginismus. So not being able to put anything in the vagina. Um, they then they looked into the myth of like the hymen as a sign of purity. And they said that doesn't actually extend back into ancient texts actually might have been brought into these cultures via colonialism. The, the myth that the hymen is a, a marker of virginity or purity and how that really harms women. Um, so then we went into Mormons, a great uh, podcast for Mormons on sex is called Mormon sex. So that's kind of easy to remember. Um, a lot, it could be a lot of pressure on the woman that their sexuality is owned by God or their spouse. Um, infertility is viewed as a punishment and then uh, not LBGTQAI plus supportive um, in that religion. The overall, uh, the overall message was so awesome. It was like, don't assume things about people just because they told you their religion, right? Because it is so broad and, and people don't always fall, you know, letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. So it's like, always ask, never assume, never judge somebody by what they said their religion is. Um, and then there was a Catholicism one, which was awesome. The guy was so dynamic. I was raised Catholic. So I, it spoke to me on a, on a certainly a deep level that sex is viewed as integral. 
um, and that consent is paramount, which is very, very cool, um, that parents should be the first sex educators and then that um, sexual harm can make deep, deep wounds. Um, here we go. Somebody said, I work with a lot of arranged marriage couples and most do not know their basic anatomy and have not masturbated. So many of the religious women I work with have vaginismus. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much that you bring to your sexuality because of the uh, faith that you have and what you've been taught. So one of the coolest things about this conference, you guys, is that they bring in so many different experts from so many different areas and this the feeling of respectfulness and curiosity and engagement that was in, in a time where it's really difficult to have difficult conversations. I just felt that this conference did it so, so well with religion and sex. It was awesome. I Goal for me is to have at least this Catholic guy on because he was so dynamic. I would love to have him on my podcast. So stay tuned. All right, you guys, I love you so much. That's the roundup. I'm starving. I'm going to go find some food. And I will see you guys soon for day three of the podcast.